Morning, church. It's good to be with you today. Happy fall. Happy start of the school year. This morning's sermon is going to be on a flyover of the book of Ephesians so that as we work through it over the next, uh, next six months or so, taking a break for Christmas and missions conference, uh, we'll be able to work through it chapter by, or paragraph by paragraph. This morning we'll try to give, it, give ourselves a good overview of what Paul's trying to accomplish in this letter that he writes to the church that's living in the city of Ephesus in the first century. So let me pray and let's turn to the Lord's word together. Father, you were not content for us to be separated from you because of our sin. That's how much you loved us. Lord Jesus, thank you for knowing the heart of the Father, submitting to the heart of the Father, living and dying and rising in our place. Holy Spirit, thank you for taking the work of the gospel, the work that Jesus accomplished, his life, his death, his resurrection, and applying all that work to a people, to your people. Would you guide us this morning as we look together at the book of Ephesians, seeking to understand what Paul is trying to say to the church in Ephesus and to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. A relationship with Jesus isn't something you add as an accessory to your life, like a new jacket or a new pair of shoes. It's not a new hobby you're suddenly into, like pickleball, as great as pickleball is. It's not a new set of friends that you meet at the neighborhood pool. A relationship with Jesus is not a new phase that you're in or a new stage of life that you enter. Jesus Christ isn't willing to occupy a corner of anyone's life. He loves us way too much to settle for that. Jesus is our life. Jesus is our life. A relationship with Jesus totally transforms everything about who we are. It's more like a heart transplant. Because of our relationship with Christ, because of all the Spirit has brought about in our lives, because of our faith in Him, a new heart beats in the chest of God's people. We were blind but now we have new eyes that help us to see. And this relationship with Jesus transforms everything about who we are, the way we act and behave, the way we manage our time at work and play, the way that we think about suffering and comfort, the way that we approach relationships, the way that you prioritize the future over the present, the values that you set down before your children. This is what transpired in the city of Ephesus in the first century. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey, but in the first century, it's a port in the Roman province of Asia, a hub for politics and religion and commerce with a population above 200,000 people. Ephesus is also famously home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of the goddess Artemis. Ephesians believe that Artemis' image fell from heaven and landed in Ephesus, and they understand themselves to be her protectors and guardians. The worship of this goddess Artemis pervades life in Ephesus. Her image is on their coins, and all games and festivals are held in her honor. And the Ephesians export the worship of Artemis all throughout Asia Minor. 
Luke records in Acts chapter 19 that Paul and his missionary team arrive in Ephesus during what we know as Paul's third missionary journey. This is probably around 52 AD, and Paul stays there longer than he stays in most places, more than three years. And for the first two years, Paul goes into their lecture hall, and he argues boldly about the kingdom of God. And the gospel begins to challenge the prevailing worldview and perspective of the Ephesians. The gospel challenges Ephesian lifestyles and actions and thinkings and emotions and even their financial security. Jesus refuses to occupy a corner of our life. His gospel is not a new accessory, life stage, or hobby. The gospel of Jesus is a glorious light that breaks into the darkness of our lives. The gospel becomes for the people of God one, the one consuming passion in the hearts of the people that it has transformed and is transforming. And in the city of Ephesus in the first century, that transformation leads Christians to stop buying precious idols. It leads Christians to forsake witchcraft and to burn their magic books in front of the whole town of Ephesus to a tune of 50,000 pieces of silver. And as Christians forsake witchcraft and the goddess Artemis for the worship of Jesus, the city around them begins to feel it. Ephesus begins to feel Christians withdraw from what it is to be Ephesians and begin to take on what it is to be Christians. A great spiritual battle is underway in the city of Ephesus to the point that a silversmith, Demetrius, begins to wail as his profit margins dwindle. Here's what he says in Acts chapter 19. Demetrius, the silversmith, gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Man, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands, human hands, are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And before long, the whole city of Ephesus is in an uproar and explodes into the massive Ephesian theater that seats more than 20,000 people. Some of Paul's traveling companions are abducted by the crowd and brought into the theater for a vigilante trial. And Paul tries to go and address the crowd, but the Ephesian Christians refuse him access to the theater. For two hours, Luke tells us that the crowd shouts in unison, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours, what unites a crowd of 20,000 people to shout in unison for two hours, great is the goddess Artemis of the Ephesians. The gospel is eroding the worldview in Ephesus and throughout Asia Minor. Christians abandon what Ephesians have always thought and believed. Christians walk away from practices that Ephesians have always cherished and engaged. 
Instead, they begin to live lives consistent with the transformation that God has begun in their hearts. So they cut ties and they break alliances and they forsake allegiances with the kingdoms of this world for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. If a relationship with Jesus was something that could be added on to the corner of their lives, then there would be no riot in Ephesus. If Jesus was just an accessory or an appendage, then Artemis, the goddess, would be left untouched. But that's not what happens. Ephesus is turned upside down because of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a massive prison break from the kingdoms of this world into the freedom of the kingdom of Jesus. Now, about 10 years later, around 62 AD, Paul is under house arrest in Rome. And while he's under house arrest, he writes this letter to the Ephesian church that we're going to study together. The Ephesian church that he lived with and loved for three years. And here's what Paul says to the elders of Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem before he's arrested and then later delivered to Rome. He gathers the elders of Ephesus together and says this in Acts chapter 20. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul loved the church in Ephesus. And this, his letter to them makes one overarching point. The glorious gospel of Jesus is our one consuming passion. The glorious gospel of Jesus is our one consuming passion. Church family, Jesus transforms us and our identity at the core foundational level. And then he calls us to spend all our energy following after him and making him known in the world. And not doing this in our own strength, but in the strength that his spirit provides as his grace is working itself out powerfully in our hearts. If Jesus bores us, if we are bored by Jesus, then the problem is not with him. The problem is with, with us. What would happen in our families, our neighborhoods, our city, and among the nations if we embraced this? How could the Spirit use a church committed to making Jesus our one consuming passion, a church who refuses to compartmentalize Jesus, to constrain Him to three hours on Sunday mornings, or to keep Him from sins that we really don't want to give up, or to restrict Him from conversations with non-Christians that are just too embarrassing? I'll tell you what would happen. We would have a riot on our hands. Not because we sought to take the world by force. That's not the way of Jesus' people. But because we would live as salt and light. That we would be a city on a hill. Living in the world. But not taking part in what the world loves. For the very sake of the world. Ephesians is organized into two major sections, chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. And in chapters 1 through 3, Paul is calling on the Ephesians to gratefully remember who we are in Christ. It is three brilliant chapters where Paul tells us all the things that are true about us because we belong to Christ. 
And He wants us to gratefully remember because gratefully remembering will stoke the consuming passion to make Jesus known. And in chapters 4 through 6, Paul calls on us, he summons us to gladly walk in a manner consistent with all the things that are true about us. Chapters 1 through 3, here's who you are. Chapters 4 through 6, now walk in light of who you are. Gladly walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. As I said, this morning's sermon is a flyover of the book of Ephesians, and I want to just hit those two points, gratefully remember and gladly walk. So look again at what Jonah read in Ephesians chapter 1, and here's verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul describes himself here as an apostle, as a messenger, as an envoy of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So he's doing what God the Father has assigned for him to do. He's acting as a messenger, an envoy, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul is therefore writing with authority. He's an apostle of Jesus. He's doing the will of God the Father. He writes with authority. It strengthens all that he's about to say in this letter by assigning it God's authority. Recall how Jesus appeared to Paul years before, commanding him to stop persecuting Jesus and Jesus' people. Remember how God said to Ananias that Paul was a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, and kings and the children of Israel. Paul rehearses his God-given authority to strengthen all that he's about to say. And as we now know, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, to the saints, to the holy ones, the ones faithful to Jesus, the ones relying upon him, trusting him, the ones who embrace the gospel. He's writing to the ones who burned their magic books, cutting ties with the dark demonic forces at work in Ephesus at the time, the ones who melted their idols, abandoning the worship of false gods fashioned with human hands. That's who Paul's writing to, the ones who embrace the worship of the one true living God, the ones empowered by the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised, who depend upon him for life and holy living. Now, what's Paul's message in these opening verses? Grace to you and peace, Ephesian church, from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. A precious reminder that peace with God, the peace we so desperately need, comes to us by faith in Christ Jesus, comes to us by the generous, merciful heart of God. It's an invitation to the hearts of the Ephesians. Paul is inviting the Ephesians at the heart level. Return to your souls. Return your souls to their resting place. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is compassionate and kind. The Lord has been good to us. Paul says to the Ephesians, grace and peace. And now in verse 3, he turns to the first major thing he wants to say to the Ephesian church in this letter, and that's to gratefully remember. Look at verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
This verse is going to tee up the whole first three chapters. Blessed or worthy of praise is God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father is worthy of praise. He's worthy of our honor. Why is he worthy of praise and honor and worship and glory? Because he's blessed us in Christ. And that blessing is lavish. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The Father's blessings toward us are heavenly blessings. They're spiritual blessings. They are blessings that outlast this life. This is what we saw in Romans 8 together this summer. Future glory, untouchable blessings that moths and rust cannot eat or destroy. Blessings that are reserved for God's people. These are spiritual blessings, not physical blessings. He has not promised comfort or wealth or ease or health now. He's promised spiritual blessings that are working themselves out in our lives now. Spiritual realities that are already true and already start to make a difference in our life. And we'll spend the next three months staring at those realities together. We praise God because God saved us. We gratefully remember all that God has done to make us new and alive. We were helpless and he saved us. We were dead and he raised us to life. And so we're, what we're going to see over the next three months is a breathtaking list of the spiritual realities that define us. Because if we trust Jesus, we are not victims of our circumstances. We are not at the whims of our relationships. We're not defeated by sin struggles. We are not capsized by suffering in this present age. We are not in any spiritual danger if we are in Christ. Paul wants us to gratefully remember who we are. Let these things wash over you. Here's an overview of the next three chapters. Paul says that we are recipients of astounding spiritual blessings. We are heirs of a glorious eternal inheritance. We are participants in God's powerful redemptive purposes. That's chapter one. Chapter two, we are beneficiaries of a rich and merciful salvation. We are members of God's precious all nations household and then in chapter 3, we are partakers of the mysterious gospel promises. And finally, we are the dwelling of God's powerful Holy Spirit. That's the first three chapters of Ephesians. And if the flame of that one consuming passion has grown cold in your heart, if in quiet moments, in honest moments, you really feel bored by your relationship with Christ, or if you are losing hope, or if you fear blowback from the world we live in, or if you are restricting Jesus to a corner of your life, the first three chapters of Ephesians call us to gratefully remember all that Christ has done. We must work to remember because we are prone to forget. We are so forgetful. The world seems so pressing because we see it. We see the world living in front of us. Remembering is a commitment to not live by sight. A commitment to prioritize the eyes of our heart over the eyes of our face. To let our faith overpower what we can see around us with our eyes. Trusting that the things that we can see are transient 
and temporary and fleeting and fading. But the things we can't see, the things that we hold on to by faith are eternal and lasting and steadfast in the heavens. So do you feel defeated by your sin? Do you feel outmatched by sin's power in your life? Do you feel unlovely or ashamed or far off from God and others? The first three chapters of Ephesians help us to gratefully remember things like this, that God chose us before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Take that to your sin struggle. Remember gratefully that our trespasses have been forgiven according to the riches of God's grace. He's not been stingy with His grace. He has lavished His grace on us and has forgiven us all our trespasses. Remember that all authorities in creation are under Jesus' feet, not just in this age, but also in the age to come. Or do you feel overlooked by God? Do you look at others who seem to receive bountifully from the Lord while your desires for good things remain unmet? Gratefully remember that God predestined you for adoption through Jesus Christ. Gratefully remember that in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Gratefully remember that the height, the depth, the breadth, and the length of God's love is an endless ocean that far surpasses our ability to comprehend it. We cannot comprehend the love of God. It is far too vast. Do you feel isolated and alone? Gratefully remember that you have been sealed with God's very own Holy Spirit. That if you are in Christ, you who are once far off and strangers to God's promises have been brought near to God through the work of Christ and united to Christ's body, the church. You are not alone. You are not isolated. You are gathered with God's people from all nations who gather together in local churches like this one with Christ as our head. We have to gratefully remember what is true. We have to always remember what is true, remembering what God has done, and let that flame build the consuming passion of the gospel. Our minds can be blind. We need to remember. Our feelings and emotions can be wrong. They need to be realigned to truth. Ephesians will help us to remember by holding up the glorious diamond of the gospel and imploring us, look at this. Behold what God has done to make us new. Look at the spiritual realities that mark you. They are more true and more eternal than anything you feel and think about yourself in this life. Ephesians calls us to pause and be amazed, to stop and wonder, to kneel and worship, to stand and sing, to gratefully remember the blessings, the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. That's the first three chapters. The second three chapters, Ephesians 4 through 6, Paul calls on the church to gladly walk. Gratefully remember who you are in Christ. Gladly walk out in a way that is consistent. I just finished a book this week about the wicked and insane rise of the KKK in the 1920s, particularly focused on the state of Indiana, the northern state of Indiana. 
Membership spread in the KKK like wildfire in this northern Indiana state in no small part to the fact that pastors in Indiana were willing to be paid off by the KKK. They were willing to let Jesus' gospel be displaced by a gospel of racial superiority. This week I read in the news two recent situations of harmful acts against children that were done by, quote, church-going parents. People have executed untold damage to the reputation of Jesus Christ and his beautiful bride, the church, by claiming to be Christians while living in a manner that was completely inconsistent with the gospel they claim to believe. And we don't have to put on a white sheet or hurt children to be challenged here. I think every one of us understands the temptation to let what we profess we believe about Jesus to be inconsistent with how we live. And that's what Ephesians 4, chapter 4 through 6 is concerned with. There's more that Paul wants to say in this letter to Ephesus and to the church at Cherrydale. Flip over to chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The therefore is referring all the way back to chapter one. And Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In chapter one, Paul refers to himself as an apostle, a messenger. Here, Paul refers to himself as a prisoner for the Lord. And Paul is a physical prisoner in Rome under house arrest because of Jesus. Because his one consuming passion was to make Christ known in the world to Jew and Gentile alike. God wants our walk to be consistent with our call. Even if we're mocked by the world or thrown in jail for the sake of the gospel. So Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy. To walk is to carry out your life. The way you make decisions. The way you live. The way you buy houses and work jobs and raise families and build up churches and share the gospel and love your neighbor. Run the race set before you. Conduct your life in a certain way. In a way that is consistent. In a way that's worthy of the calling the way that's consistent with what Jesus has done for you in line with the calling that he's placed on your life. If all the realities of chapters one through three are true, then Paul says, live your life in light of them. If you're a child of the light, then walk in the light. If you're an apple tree, then let's see some of the apples that God is producing by his grace. But I'm calling it glad submission. Glad submission, meaning not reluctant submission. Because the burden that Jesus places on us is light and his yoke is easy. Holiness is not dreary and stifling. God's command help us to thrive as he intended us to in a world that's been broken by sin. If you belong to God, then obedience to him is wonderful. It's a wonderful blessing. God's design and instructions lead to order and light and peace and joy. Obeying God leads to his blessing. Not in a physical sense, but
but in the spiritual sense that we've already talked about. Life together with His people. Life unashamed and naked before the Lord. There's no guilt. There's, no, there's nothing hiding. Psalm 34 verse 17 says, When the righteous cry out for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their trouble. 1 Peter 3 12 for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. What we're longing for is glad obedience, glad walking because God's grace has made this obedience possible and desirable. Because inside the hearts of Christians grows a desire to obey, a new heart, a new spirit that longs to obey the Lord and to delight his heart. Obedience starts to taste good. We love God and His Word with increasing measure. And as we move through the second half of Ephesians in the winter, Paul will get incredibly specific with us about what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of Christ. Here's a chart outlining chapters 4 through 6. Pursue unity. Build up the church. Put on righteousness kill your sin, walk in love and light, depend on the Holy Spirit, pursue Christ-exalting marriages, seek God-honoring families, practice God-fearing work relationships, and engage the spiritual battle that is all around us. Here's the bottom line. Those whose hearts gratefully remember are the ones who will gladly walk in light of the gospel. The grateful remembering is the engine that causes us to gladly walk in light of all that God has done. Now, depending on your upbringing, obedience may feel indistinguishable with legalism. But Paul is not saying, church, obey so that God loves you. He's saying, church, obey because God has loved you first. Paul says God loves you and makes it possible for you to obey him, so gladly walk in light of the calling of the gospel. Or obedience may feel suffocating to you, suffocatingly boring. But God wants us to see that disobedience is deadly to ourselves and to others, and that obedience is merely a life lived to the fullness God intended it to be in this world. Glad-hearted, Walking obedience to Jesus is simply living out the truth of who God has made us. It's an outward demonstration of the inward transformation that God has already brought about. Now, let me end here. Jesus tells a parable, a story with a point, recorded by Matthew. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field that has that treasure that brought him such joy. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought the pearl. This is how central and foundational and total the gospel is. Jesus isn't content with a corner of your life. And honestly, you aren't either. 
The gospel is a treasure that's worth more than anything in this world. Sell all you have to get it. Be willing to lose all that you own to keep it. Be willing to risk everything you have to proclaim it. The gospel is free to all who come to Jesus in faith, but Jesus wants us to know how valuable his gospel is. It should be the one consuming passion in the hearts of his people. Terry Dale, my prayer is that when we end this study in Ephesians, we are and look like very different people. I pray that our grateful remembering and our glad walking will have a significant impact that we will pause and make the gospel the center stage of our life, that the gospel would increasingly become our one consuming passion. The one consuming passion that marked the church in Ephesus. The kind of passion that caused them to forsake all their magic books for the worship of Jesus. The one consuming passion that caused them to forsake the worship of Artemis for the worship of the one true God, not made with human hands, but who made human hands. The kind of passion that causes us to depend upon the Holy Spirit of God for life and for godliness. The kind of passion that creates a stir in our own lives and in our homes and in our neighborhoods and city and among the nations. Jesus is too powerful to be relegated to a corner of our lives, to a portion of our schedule. Jesus is after all of us. His glorious gospel is worth it. It is the jewel of great price worth selling all to get. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the new life that's ours in Christ. We're grateful, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done. The things that are true about us that we'll see together over the next three months should astound us. And I pray that you would strengthen us by your word. Holy Spirit, strengthen your people to live the way that you want us to live in the world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.